From pitch side to print to the press box above Providence Park. It's Jamie Goldberg from the Oregonian and Richard Farley from the Portland Timbers and Thorns. This is Soccer Made in Portland. On the scene, all the time. Welcome everyone to Soccer Made in Portland. Um, we haven't had a ton of soccer going on uh, in Portland, outside of Portland recently. It's been a, a quiet few weeks. Uh, there's been games, but but overall it's felt a lot more quiet uh, than usual. And, and that's definitely going to be changing quite soon. I think it's been two fronts, though. As far as games that we cover, yeah, there's yeah. been almost nothing. And the game <laughs> this weekend was back in North Carolina, and it felt a world away. And it probably felt a world away because most of the games that we've been watching, the Women's World Cup games, yeah. are almost literally a world away. So it all just feels so distant. And even Wednesday's game in Tacoma, it might as well have been in Paris <laughs> or Cary, North Carolina. Uh, unfortunately, or I shouldn't say unfortunately because I'm actually looking forward to it, we are going to have, what... <sighs> Three games this week between two Timbers games and a Thorns game on Friday. And then next week, too, is going to be busy also. So we've got a lot yeah. of soccer to, that's going to make up for this gap. Yeah, there's going to be a lot. There's uh, I haven't counted how many. I, I think the Thorns just have two. Um, I don't think there's a compacted schedule there, if I'm right. But the Timbers have four games in 12 days coming up. So um, between the two of them, probably six games in that span. It's going to be busy. Yeah, it's going to be great, too. I'm, <laughs> you know, I you know, here at Providence Park, there are a lot of people that are lamenting so many games because it gets busy around here. <laughs> They're allowed to lament the fact that it's a super compacted schedule. But there's also this part of me that keeps saying to myself, why are you in this business if you don't want games at home? <laughs> I mean, we get to watch a free soccer game and then we have to do two or three hours of work afterwards. That seems like a pretty good trade-off. And quite frankly, the work I do, as people remind me all the time, it's just not that hard. <laughs> Well, I like to beg, a dif- beg to differ. I think what we do is hard sometimes, but um, it is enjoyable. That's hard to argue with that. Um, even if the games feel a world away, as you said, let's start with uh, one of those games that really wasn't a w- world away, even uh, though Tacoma seems like a place that actually we're going to have to get used to now that Seattle rain, uh, rain moved down there, but uh, very different location than usual. Timbers at Tacoma at Seattle Sounders in U.S. Open Cup. Our predictions were not well. My I don't know what your prediction was. I forget you. You wrote a I don't know. I, so for people who can't see this, which is everybody but two, I put the <laughs> Twitter shruggy emoticon on our notes because I didn't care about this prediction. And remember, I ended up saying that there would be a goal and a team oh, would yeah. advance. <laughs> so. <laughs> you said two to nothing loss. Um, I don't know if you meant the Timbers would lose or Seattle would lose. I think you meant the Timbers would lose. I meant the Timbers. I think we were both anticipating that there wouldn't be as strong an eleven as there was at uh, at what's Cheney Stadium. Cheney Stadium is the name of the place. But yeah, like you said, both of our predictions were very wrong, and I don't think either of us predicted that half of the field for half of the game would be completely blinded by the sun being directly into the camera. So. Why we didn't foresee that, I don't know. We really should have predicted that we would be blind to uh, one quarter of the game. Yeah, and I'm not sure how that impacted the players exactly. That would be interesting to know because I, I think it was a, an up and down in performance um, from the Timbers. But I think once we saw the lineups, the Timbers get the 2-1 win over the Sounders in U.S. Open Cup to advance to the round of 16 
Once we saw the lineups, I mean, what was sort of your reaction? My, my, I assumed, I, I pretty much assumed right then, oh, Timbers are going to advance. My reaction was similar, but it was more thinking about it from how it affects my life because that's all I care about through all this. And how it affects my life is that we've seen pretty consistently now over the four Open Cup games that Giovanni Savarese has been in charge of with the Timbers. Yeah, there's been some lineup changes, but within reason, he's he's tried to win these games. And we had a dynamic last week where there was so much time between games that we were kind of talking ourselves into a number of different options. And he approached the game as if they had plenty of time around it in order for the guys to recover, um, to play on into this next round. Now, playing on to this next round has caused a hell of a schedule congestion. And if they get past this next round, well... Every other round that they invite that they go in the U.S. Open Cup is going to create a three-game week. So it's not quite a double-edged sword. It's more just you you took a short sword and you sharpened it and you put it in the schedule monster's hands. But either way, it was very clear that Giovanni Savarese wanted to win that game. Yeah, absolutely. He put out uh, pretty much his top available lineup. Uh, we obviously saw some changes from the usual eleven, but I, I think those were mostly around injuries or absences. Otherwise, pretty much the top group. Um, and Brian Fernandez is the player that leads the Timbers. I mean, at least on the attacking side. Because I think in terms of player of the game, there's probably some debate there. Brian Fernandez scores twice. He has six goals in four appearances for the Timbers. Has now helped them in U.S. Open Cup and MLS play. You think we can expect him to just keep scoring every single game? We don't have any reason to believe otherwise. <laughs> I mean, of course he's going to come back to his own personal mean, right? Everybody does. But that is going to coincide with teams adjusting to him. And it's very clear that his effort level is probably not going to wane. He seems to take a lot of personal pride in the hunger he has for goals. So I think we're playing this waiting game as to when opponents start adjusting to him. To this point, they haven't really had enough time to gauge his, not only his strengths, but how Giovanni Savarese plans on using those strengths. Well, slowly but surely, the game tape is starting to form, and you would expect the Galaxy this week, the Dynamo this week, who knows how many games Brian Fernandez is going to play this week. You would expect somebody to come up with something new, because at this point, it'd be pretty foolish to keep putting your team out there and just expecting Brian Fernandez to slow down. Yeah, I, I mean, this signing has been everything the Timbers want uh, to this point, and I don't expect him to score every single game, but um, I, I think Mike Donovan had a stat or something that said was pretty funny on Twitter, saying along the lines of, Brian Fernandez is the first Timber to score in his first four appearances for the team. He's the first Timber to score six goals during his first four appearances for the team because he's not only scoring, he, he's having yeah. these multi-goal games Um it's just I don't think we've ever seen a player come in and I mean even Diego Valeri come in and put up these numbers as quickly as Ryan Fernandez has one of those games was against the best defense in major league soccer one of those games he only played half an hour yeah I mean he's he's had some things working against him in this goal scoring streak uh so even the other game that we haven't mentioned the Philadelphia game that's a decent team so it's not like he's just beating up on cream puffs here you can go ahead and say that the Sounders lineup was cream puff e but I think we saw even though we should have expected the Timbers to play better we saw different on Wednesday it was a decent team Uh, Brian Fernandez at this point as you kind of hinted at, he's as advertised. And the question is more when somebody is going to slow him down than, in my mind, when he is going to slow down. Yeah. I think the other player that I want to talk about before we get into more, maybe more of the specifics of the U.S. Open Cup game as much as we want to, um, 
Because I, like I said before, it really was questionable. You could say Brian Fernandez because of the two goals is the player of the game, but the Timbers had to defend a lot in that game, and, and I don't think they necessarily would have got that win without Steve Clark. I completely agree with you. You know, it's it's interesting because right now with the Women's World Cup, we're having a lot of discussions about goalkeeping. And this is always a pet peeve of mine because really most of the saves you see goalkeepers make, most goalkeepers would make them. What really distinguishes goalkeepers are that those sliver of sla- saves that other people wouldn't make, their distribution and their decision-making, as well as avoiding mistakes. And I think once you start to put all those things together, you see that Steve Clark has become a pretty well-rounded goalkeeper. Uh, and in the avoiding mistakes part, I mean, you have to bring it up, he has been performing better than his competition. The bigger question for me is where does this leave the Timbers if Steve Clark has become their number one? Maybe this is something we should talk about later, but I think you can make the argument that Steve Clark is not a number one goalkeeper in Major League Soccer. Certainly DC United and Columbus would agree with that. Maybe he's grown and he's really reestablished himself as that, but I also think you can engage in this discussion that the Timbers have two kind of 1.5s and not a real one, in which case it leads you to the discussion of Alias Ivicic and where he's eventually going to fit in. Yeah, I think... I think Steve Clark has been performing well enough right now to be that number one. And for the Timbers to feel pretty happy with that. It's not a, it's not a position where they clearly are putting all their resources at when, when, when you have a player like Steve Clark or, or really Jeff Annella starting. Um, but both of those guys have been good at times for the Timbers. Obviously we've talked about it. Jeff Annella has inconsistency as sort of given Clark this opportunity, but Clark has done really well with it. And I think right now he deserves to be starting in, he's doing well enough to to be a starting goalkeeper in MLS. But I do agree with you that kind of when you look at, at his overall profile and, and um, just sort of his background, the Timbers probably could, could look at that position and, and look at other options. And it will be interesting now. We saw Ivicic get his first start with T2. Gio uh, Vani Savarasi said today that he's fully recovered, still working his way back up to full fitness although I, I can't imagine that's as concerning for a goalkeeper as it would be um, for maybe a field player that really has to spend a lot of time getting up to that fitness level uh, to be able to effectively play. Um, I, I've heard a lot of things from the team about how highly they rated Ivicic when he came in. It wasn't just this, we're bringing this backup uh, that's just going to sit on the bench. It was, we're bringing in this guy that's young and has a high upside and can compete now. And so it really is going to be interesting to see how he sort of fits in now that he's getting back to full health and can really start to compete with Clark and Adanella for that starting spot. That's a great reminder, Jamie. I was actually a little bit surprised when, even before the Ivicic signing became official, I heard people here talking about him, and they were talking about him as if he's being brought in to not only compete with Jeff Adanella, but if, if the signing was made correctly, take the job from him. And I mean, that sounds a little bit severe, but it's kind of the same thing with uh, Jorge Morera. You don't bring him in unless you expect him to start. And that doesn't mean you're going to give him the job. But if all things work out, he will be a starting player for you. Gavin Wilkinson forecast that when he talked to us in December, in the days after we all got back from Atlanta, and saying, we're going to bring in three or four players to compete at starting positions. And even Chich is one of those. We kind of forgot about it because for what now? Four months, he hasn't been in the spotlight. And then we've been consumed by this Clark versus Atnella thing. And then people like you and me who've seen uh, Kendall McIntosh play for a couple years. We kind of keep him in the back of our mind. Or even, you know, last year when Jake Leeson was at the forefront of our mind. And now that we listen, there have been so many goalkeepers. And, Al- and Alas Ivicic has been able to fly under the radar. But when he is healthy, and they wouldn't have played him this weekend unless he was fully healthy, 
he's going to compete for the starting job. It's just a matter of when that competition really kicks off. Yeah, and I think right now it's Clark's position to lose. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think if Ivicic comes in and proves it in practice, he'll get his opportunities. But given Adonella's inconsistency and given how well Clark, I think, has done with his opportunity, I will I, maybe in tomorrow's U.S. Open Cup game, I could see rotation. I could see Savarasi giving Adonella another opportunity. But I think right now when you're looking at MLS games, starting lineups, it has to be Clark back there. I agree with you, but then I also think about the physical profile of Alia Zivicic, which people that were out Providence Park on Sunday got to see or uh, stream the game on ESPN+. Plus. He has Atanella's size, a little better than Atanella's size, but he has Steve Clark's skill on the ball. So when you, we start talking about this debate we've been having between Jeff Atanella and Steve Clark, well, a large part has been there are two very distinct goalkeepers. He combines the physical and technical strengths of both. I, he's a more technical player than Steve Clark. Um, you, when you see him, a good example was this weekend for people who saw the T2 games on the goal kicks. On the goal kicks, he sets the ball right at the, the middle of the goal, goal on the six-yard six box line. And then he just walks straight back from it because he can play equally adept with his left or right foot. So he's not committing at that point a direction to play. He's not lining up and then lining, you know, kind of like a field goal kicker would going off to the side to kick a ball long. He at that point is looking at the field and just going, I can kick with my left, I can kick it my, with my right. I'm going to see what's available. And that shows you not only the technical quality he has, but the confidence he has in that technical quality. If the reasons why Steve Clark has emerged over Jeff Atanella are partly due to that technical quality, then it's going to be interesting to see when they give Alias Ivicic a chance because he even has a greater strength in that area. Yeah, and that's definitely something that we're going to need to watch, especially as we look into a compacted schedule. If there's going to be rotations around even the goalkeeper position, a, a position that you don't need quite as to rotate quite as much around compacted schedule, mm-hmm. if it's going to happen, it's very possible that Savarese could look to do that um, now just because they are dealing with so many games. So he doesn't have to, but it, it'll definitely be something to watch. And I think this period that's coming up, especially if the Timbers advance in Open Cup and in, in the beginning of July, they have another three-game week, like we're going to see a three-game week towards the end of June coming up. Uh, there are going to be these opportunities to give people a chance to gather information on players that you then use to make those decisions towards the end of the year. What was it? We've talked about this before, Jamie. What was it only like the last six games of the year last year where they really settled on their starting lineup yeah. and their formation? So. If you use that as a model, you want to go into your last six or eight games of the year having acquired as much information as possible. So for me, if I were in the coach's situations, I would not only be looking to give Alias Ivacic a couple starts, I'd be looking to give Eric Williamson a start. Eric Williamson, you know, I've been so hesitant to speak positively about him on the show because I wanted a broader sample size of what he could do. I think we're at the point where that sample size is pretty sufficient. And he's continued to produce. He's continued to be consistent. He's continued to take on more responsibility. I want to see. I want to see him get an opportunity. I want to see Marvin Loria get an opportunity. There are a number of players that I think are in line to potentially be the next Christian Paredes in terms of the effect they can have on the team. But they're going to need a couple of chances here over the next month to show it. And I, I think that is one place where the schedule congestion can be kind of like a perverse positive. So let's, before we get into looking ahead in this uh, congested schedule that we're going to be uh, coming up on, let, let's talk a little bit about the specifics of this Open Cup game. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it, like you said, 
when we both saw the lineup, it, you could see the Timbers had an advantage personnel-wise just in terms of them playing their top lineup. Seattle was missing a lot of players, was playing much more of a depth lineup. Um, but the Timbers score first, and then momentum really shifts to, in Seattle's favor after um, that first goal. And um, Timbers nearly allow the equalizer on a penalty kick. Uh, it, they will end up getting the 2-1 win, and they, mm-hmm. they, they advance. But how do you feel about this performance? And did it raise any concerns for you maybe about the Timbers' defense? Not really the defense. I mean, the only goal that Seattle got was on a deflected penalty kick. Yeah. Not a penalty kick, a direct kick. Obviously, there was a penalty kick later that Victor Rodriguez put off the crossbar. Um, and I think the defense was put in a bad position by the mentality of the team changing. Uh, Jamie, we were at Beaverton last week, the day before they took the bus up to Tacoma. And Giovanni Savarese was saying that you know games like this at this point for the Timbers are an opportunity to go out and dominate. And Seattle put out a lineup that should have been dominated. We saw it early in the game, but the goal just completely changed the mentality of the team. And uh, that's, p- part of the, that's part of the reason I'm not too concerned about the performance, but also disappointed. Like, you had your chance to put your, put your foot in these guys' throats, end it before halftime, and just play out a perfunctory 45 minutes. Instead, Jamie, Seattle was in that game till the end, and it felt almost relief when the final whistle came. So I, I want to hear what you think about it, but for me... I'm I'm not concerned, but it, it just feels like such a lackluster bef- below their potential performance. Yeah, I, I'm not specifically concerned about the defense, like you said. I, I do wish that this team would get its clean sheet at some point, and this felt like an opportunity. So in that sense, I, I think uh, I just felt like that was a wasted opportunity. But I, I agree. I, I think it was more the mentality or the momentum shift and how the Timbers let that happen. I, I think when you're looking at what the Timbers have to do right now, they're in last place in, in the Western Conference. That's a little bit unfair because they've played fewer games than most every other team in the West. Um, so it, they're probably on points per game a little bit higher. But they have to start getting wins at home. And to do that, they're going to have to dominate in some of these games. They're not going to have opportunities to, you know, put a game to bed necessarily by halftime like they may have had against a weaker Seattle team when they're playing top lineups in MLS. But they also have to be able to find, not allow momentum to shift to their opponent after scoring a goal. They, they need to be the team that can dictate the game at home and they need to start picking up those wins. So I'm not going to say I'm concerned that this is going to be a trend at this point, but but I do think it was disappointing to see in this game, and we're going to have to see something different as they move back into these home games in MLS play. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Jamie. I think the, the good thing is, particularly since Brian Fernandez arrived, but also at stretches going back to last season, that the Timbers have shown that they have the technical quality and the desire at times to dominate these games, to be the con- controlling teams in these games. But just as worrisome, and this goes back to the beginning of last year, it maybe even back to uh, the days when this core was forming and there was a different coach in charge, Caleb Porter, this team also has a tendency to let their backs get against the wall before they do something. You can point to the slow starts they've had in each of the last two years. You can point to the lull they had in the middle of last season where they dropped to about fifth in the West and you kind of had to start going, do we have to worry about playoffs here all of a sudden? And then you can also point to some things that happened during the playoffs, too. Them letting Seattle back into the the semifinal. Them falling behind to Kansas City uh, in Kansas City. This team tends to have a tendency to wake up at the right time. But in order to wake up, you have to fall asleep. So that's that's what I'm kind of worried about. When they're in this hole right now, they're in last place. Their points per game, hint, they're not the worst team in the league. But no matter what, they have to crawl out of this hole. How difficult are they going to make it for themselves? Because the alternative is just to start playing like you should. Yeah. 
Yeah, and we're going to see this week um, kind of how difficult they are going to make it on themselves, both, I, I guess, in U.S. Open Cup, but more importantly, in a second home game of the year against the Dynamo. So let's get into those two games. Uh, the first game, you'll probably be, well, you'll probably be listening to this podcast just uh, on the day of the game. Timbers will face the Galaxy in the U.S. Open Cup on Wednesday at 8 p.m. at Providence Park. They have a game against Houston in MLS play that I I think is more important. <laughs> a few, just three days later, I don't know that there's any controversy there. Yeah. Um, so what are you sort of expecting? Well, Gio is as he always does, did not give us any hints on the lineup uh, for Wednesday's game. But what are you sort of expecting out of this match? I, I honestly don't know, Jamie. I think that the team has enough quality first team players to put out both a strong lineup and a team that respects that some players aren't going to be able to do two games in four days on turf here in Portland. So, you know, you know, Sebastian Blanco is probably going to play since he can't play on Saturday because he has yellow card accumulation, maybe one or two other of like the key attacking players play and you just split the two teams. The other possibility is that Giovanni Savarese plays his full team on Wednesday and then decides on Thursday, how he's going to approach Saturday's match. I, I don't I don't think that would happen, but some coaches would do that. My feeling is that he's he, over these next four games completely, he's going to take a a measured approach, kind of split the squad a little bit, use as an opportunity for some of these players that aren't getting uh, a lot of minutes, the Eric Williamsons of the world, say, Hey, you're gonna play Wednesday and Wednesday, Eric. This is your opportunity. You're gonna play an open cup and you're gonna play against Montreal. Show me what you can do. We'll reassess it in a week. I don't, but what would you, Jamie? What would you do, Jamie? Because I'm not sure there's a right answer here. I think they're just kind of preferences that we have. I, I don't know. I, I kind of do think there's a right answer. I I think that this Open Cup game and the Montreal game are are less important and have to be approached approached as they are less important than the two MLS home games. I think where the Timbers are in the standings, they have to start taking advantage of these home games, and they can't put themselves in a position where they can't play best so- their best soccer in those matches. Montreal was always going to be a tough game midweek um, going all the way to Montreal. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a rotated lineup there. I, I'm, I expect some players to play to, to play on short rest within this, these, this four game and 12 day stretch. But I, I think you're going to see the biggest rotation happen on Wednesday in us open cup and Wednesday in Montreal. I would expect the, the open cup game to be a pretty secondary lineup overall. I absolutely agree with you that Sebastian Blanco will start. That's, I think, the one obvious one with the yellow card accumulation. I wouldn't be surprised to see one or two other main starters. Goalkeeper, I don't think you have to worry quite as much about rotation if you don't want to. So maybe we see Steve Clark again. Maybe um, Gio just gives Adanella a chance to, to kind of get back in, get his confidence back, um, kind of rebound from his latest performance. That could go either way for me. Um, Summer asks what, who will start in defense in Wednesday's match. I do think that's a little bit of a question because Tui Loma is just now starting to come back. And I, I would be shocked if he's ready to go from Wednesday based on what Savarese said today. So I, I think they're defensively, they might be in a position where they can't necessarily rotate quite as much unless we start seeing some different players that really haven't featured at all, um, for the team, uh, some players from T2 coming up, maybe, maybe a Marco Farfan getting a start, um, an outside back, something like that. Um, if they want to go with a, a closer to top lineup, they don't have the ability to just say, Oh, we throw Julio Cascante in this game, Tui Loma in that game. Something like that might not work based on Tui Loma's health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting regarding the center backs because I think 
there's generally four options at this point. If you want to take Tui Loma out of the equation, there's Laris Mabiala, Julio Cascante, Claude Dielna, and Modu Jadama. And I think it's complicated by the fact that the Galaxy have this prominent striker. I don't know if everybody's heard of him. I can't really pronounce his last name. Let's just skip over <laughs> that. But uh, that prominent striker gave them some problems in L.A. And while you might just want to say, eh, it's open cup, let's throw Claude Dielna out there again, Claude Dielna was kind of the main culprit in L.A. and didn't really handle the matchup that well. If you want to start looking at things from that point of view, then you're probably going to be cautious about throwing Modu Jadama out there against Zlatan Ibrahimovic too. So you might think to yourself, okay, well, this is a point where we might put Larry Smabial and Julio Cascante out there, then decide on Thursday if either of them can go on Saturday and make an assessment as to whether Modu Jadama or Claude Dielna or maybe a recovered Bill Tuiloma plays then. I don't know. I I think we're this goes back to like different versions of the same logic that we were talking about maybe four or five minutes ago. It all comes down to whether Giovanni Savarese is really going to be comfortable kind of punting on U.S. Open Cup. And I, I, I just don't see that in him. I can see him kind of starting like, you know, half of his best 11. But then again, you talked about Montreal. You know, if I was looking at the schedule, I'm looking at points to make up. Montreal is the weakest team they're going to be facing over the next two weeks. Montreal is like something like a negative seven goal difference. They have no Nacho Piatti right now. Uh, if I'm looking at a place to get some valuable road points where they might be scarce elsewhere, I, I might kind of put some more chips in the Montreal basket. But then again, that's the middle game in a three-game week with flights on each side of it. So I feel like you can just keep talking yourselves in circles on this one. Either way, I think the one thing, Jamie, out of these Open Cup games that we've seen from Giovanni Savarese over the last two years, it, the one thing that I feel comfortable with is that he he really is going to – he's not going to put a team out there that he doesn't think can win. I'll put it that way. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. But at, at the same time, you got to think about what type of lineup he's expecting from the Galaxy as well. Yeah. And you're talking about Zlatan and how you defend Zlatan. Is Zlatan really going to play on turf in yeah. a U.S. Open Cup game? I mean, maybe an MLS game, but yeah. in a U.S. Open Cup game, I, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. I, I'd be surprised to see Zlatan tomorrow, especially in the starting lineup, maybe off the bench. But I, I kind of doubt he's going to play. And so if you make the assumption that the Galaxy are going to rotate as well, which I think is probably a fair assumption that they're at least going to rotate somewhat, then maybe Savaresi feels more comfortable starting certain players. But it's it's kind of just based on like that kind of like poker hand. Like who? What do you think the other team's going to do? Yeah, they're already missing significant players. They're missing yeah. uh, Jonathan Dos Santos with the Gold Cup, Oriel uh, Atuna for the Gold Cup, Sebastian Legit is injured, Roman Alessandrini is injured. Uh, I think I'm missing one other one too. Uh, but either way, this is a team that has significant players who quite frankly, are incredibly important to them. Like, this team hasn't really played well this year without Jonathan Dos Santos in midfield. And to miss him is going to be a a big blow for them. So maybe at some point, like you're saying, Jamie, they just kind of go, eh, open cup, road game, midweek travel. Eh, Let's just send some of these players that haven't played up there. And if we advance, we advance. If not, we move on with our season. Yeah, but at the same time, if you're Giovanni Savarese, you you have to at least prepare a little bit that they're not going to do that. Yeah, so I mean, I feel like you kind of answered this, but Christopher wanted to know, does do the Timbers want to go further in U.S. Open Cup or, or are they worried about getting results in MLS play? And I think that's sort of kind of what you've been talking about and how Giovanni Savaresi yeah. approaches U.S. Open Cup. But, I mean, do you have any more thoughts on where the priorities lie? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I was actually a little bit shocked last week at the strength of the lineup for the Timbers, and it's really forced me to reassess things because... 
uh, pretty much since what was it the third time that the Timbers got drawn with Seattle in uh, at Starfire, we started hearing all the noise out of this organization like we can't take Open Cup that seriously anymore. We we want we do respect Champions League, but MLS is always going to be the priority. And then that happened last week. And on one, in one sense, you can kind of say, well, they had so much time around the game. Of course, they're going to put their starters in. But also, potentially, that would have been their one time of the year to really say, we can start Marvin Lawyer here. We can start Foster Langsdorf here. We can give these guys some time in a situation where they are going to be expected to win. Let's take advantage of this. And Savarese didn't do that. So in light of that, I'm sitting here going, Oh man, how how can we possibly predict what Savarese is going to do? Which one is a stupid question because we can't and we don't have to. Our jobs don't um, rely on it in any way. But then secondly, I think it just does come down to, like you're saying, of course Giovanni Savarese is going to be smart about it. But I just don't see him putting 11 people on a whiteboard and then going, eh, I don't think we can win, but let's take a chance. It just doesn't seem like him. I think he's going to put a, a team out there that... Maybe even if it's not his strongest team, it'll be one he thinks can win. And I think that might have to be our guiding principle, Jamie, going forward as to how Giovanni Savarese is going to set up his teams. Yeah, I think that he can sit, takes U.S. Open Cup seriously. I think he probably takes U.S. Open Cup seriously, maybe more than the organization has in the past. But I, I still think that the Timbers' priority is MLS play over U.S. Open Cup. And I expect rotation tomorrow. And I, I don't expect them. I guess my guiding principle and my thought on this is I don't expect them to sacrifice the the Houston game for the games around it. Yeah. And I think in that way, the question that Christopher asks is obviously an interesting question because we've had this discussion going. But it seems like a question from two years ago because of the or in there, right? Do, you, do we want to go further in U.S. Open Cup or worry about getting results in MLS play? And I just think that whereas two or three years ago, the organization maybe thought of things in terms of that, that dichotomy, now I think there's more of a pre- preference and less of a dichotomy. I think, it's, I, I think it's more of an and, but then Christopher's question doesn't make sense. I think they just take, like Giovanni Savarese would like to compete in both of them. So let's let's talk about the MLS game, which I clearly think is the more important one. <laughs> but Timbers will play Dynamo on Saturday, 8 p.m., Providence Park. Two games at Providence Park this week for the Timbers, which is already crazy to think about because it's so many games of the road this year yeah. um, that they've played. But Timbers drew the Dynamo on the road in May with a goal from Fernandez. He came off the bench. That was his first game as a Timber. Um, this game, the Timbers will be missing some players. Sebastian Blanco will be suspended with yellow card accumulation, as we mentioned. Polo and Flores are still gone. So what are you sort of expecting, especially in terms of lineup information and how, how the Timbers approach this match? Ooh, I mean, since I have no idea what they're going to do on Wednesday, it's hard to figure out what they're going to do on Saturday. But I think I think there's a lot of respect for the Dynamo, and there should be, because the Dynamo over the last couple of years have always played the Timbers stuff. And they're not, they're not only playing the Timbers stuff, they have the second best point per game rate in the league right now. They have a plus seven goal difference, which is second in the Western Conference right now. Uh, I, I always look at their defense and I kind of scratch my head and think, well... Those guys aren't that good, but they've played well this year. And the attacking players that they have are so distinct that I think they can give anybody problems. Uh, we saw it last year at, here at Providence Park where the pressure that the defense was putting on the Timbers' back line or the Timbers, the pressure that their attack was putting on the Timbers' back line created, created some great opportunities. So what I expect is that um, – Kind of to go back with what you were saying about not really knowing what the Galaxy going to do, 
Savaretsi does know what the Dynamo are probably going to do, and he's going to be able to approach them as if they're a stationary target. So I think he probably already has a very good idea of who he wants to play on Saturday, and Wednesday's selection is going to be derived from that. Yeah, I think maybe one of the questions in terms of formation and lineup is how the Timbers navigate the absences they have. They don't have Polo, they don't have Blanco, they don't have Flores. I, I think that probably throws them Brano back into the lineup um, with Paredes as well uh, and Chara. So are they going to go with a four three two one or something like that? Maybe. I, are they going to go with a four four two with with that personnel? Um, I think they're missing a piece to necessarily do the lineup information that they would necessarily want to without either Polo or Blanco in there or Flores as, as sort of that backup to that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think it complicates things a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think they could go with a diamond midfield in that situation yeah. and have Paredes and Zambrano on the flanks. And one thing we didn't mention about the game last week, I don't think Zambrano played that well. He, I don't think he pr- built on the game that he had in Houston. Yeah. Um, I think the one thing that we saw in Houston that we kind of pointed out is like, oh, kind of got caught on the ball there before that uh, corner kick that turned into a goal. thought he got caught on the ball a lot against yeah. Seattle. Um, so if Zabrano does come back in, um, where do you play him? Do you play him in a double pivot alongside Chara? Do you put him in one of the shuttler roles in the diamond midfield? Do you not go with that formation at all? Uh, yeah, there definitely are a lot of questions. And like you said, because Blanco isn't there, uh, that really spurs a lot of them. Yeah, and I mean, do you not put Zambrano in? Because like you said, it, it, it coming out of Seattle, there's nothing that you saw there where you think, yeah, this guy has to be in the lineup. Do you give someone like Loria a chance? Do, do you start Connect Me? Something like that. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think it, it does at least open up options in one of their midfield position because with missing Blanco, Polo, and Flores, that's basically like, three options right there that they don't have that they can't use yeah but if like you were saying if they did want to use marvin loria they can just drop him into left wing yeah. and play the four two three one. but then that assumes that none of those players are playing on wednesday or the players that are playing on wednesday yeah. are going to be able to play back to back so somebody like a diego chara is he a wednesday player or is he a saturday player saturday. In, yeah in, J- in jamie's <laughs> world he's a saturday player um and you know that world obviously makes sense. I mean, if you go with a 4-2-3-1, that also means you can use Obobese as a starter on Wednesday, and all of a sudden between Obobese and Blanco, hey, all of a sudden got a pretty decent attack going here. So I think they're going to be able to kind of juggle both, but like you said, uh, the formation that we can expect... um, I don't know that anybody can expect any formation. I could see them going diamond midfield. I can see them going 4-2-3-1. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. This this game obviously raises specific questions about because of absences about what they can do. But Jack wants to know, and I, I think I've gotten this question from a lot of people, mm-hmm. with Fernandez now fully integrated, he's clearly going to be the lineup. What do you yeah. think is like the, the lineup information going forward? The, if everyone's available, what are the mm-hmm. Timbers going with? If you had asked me this four weeks ago, I would have said four two three one. But every indication that we're getting so far is probably leaning closer towards Valeri behind a Bobasi and Fernandez with Blanco slotting into a wide role in a diamond midfield. I, I feel like I've said this a lot in this podcast, though, Jamie. I don't know. If it ended up being four two three one with either a Bobasi on the bench or a Bobasi even in a wide role, I wouldn't be surprised by that either. But in the short term, it seems like the team is committed to trying to make a Bobasi and Fernandez work. Um, whether it will or not, probably will dictate what our answer to this question is four weeks from now, right? 
Yeah, and I think that that's what we're going to see. But for, for right now, not this game this weekend necessarily because of uh, Blanco's absence. But when Blanco's back, I, I think at least in the interim, we're probably going to see that 4-4-2 with the diamond midfield. I think if that doesn't work, when Polo gets back is when we might see some changes. Uh, yeah. With Polo and Flores gone for, for Copa America and Gold Cup, I think that almost forces the Timbers to get a Bobasi in that lineup and therefore probably go into the 4-4-2 diamond. And if that works, that probably will be what they stick with for the, the rest of the season. Um, I mean, Savarese will always make changes, but most consistently. Yeah, it's it's interesting with a couple of names that you mentioned. Because Sebastian Blanco can't play Saturday, and it makes it more likely for him to play Wednesday, he all of a sudden starts on a different timeline for these next four games than the other players. So the other players... Are, you know, Savarese is going to pick and choose where he wants to play them. Blanco immediately becomes somebody who, if he plays Wednesday, well, that makes it least li- less likely he's going to play Saturday. And then more likely he would play the next Wednesday, maybe. At some point, maybe you want to get him on the same calendar as the rest of the guys. Now, Andy Polo, I think, is interesting. I want to hear your feelings on this because I'm getting the feeling that Andy Polo is really at the point where he needs to justify his place. And while people have maybe said that about him since the time he arrived in Portland, I think it's more present now than ever because whether he is going to be a person that lives up to the expectations that the organization had for him when he came in last year will probably dictate whether the team feels comfortable playing in a 4-2-3-1 or they end up going to that diamond midfield. Because if he can't be productive, then all of a sudden moving Jeremy Obobese to the bench or a semi-starters role looks a little bit... I don't want to say foolish, but why would you do that if Andy Polo isn't performing? Yeah, I definitely think he needs to justify uh, his place on the team. I think he's, regardless of how he performs in in terms of production, assists, and goals, I think he could still get a lot of starts this year um, on on the back end of the season after he gets back from Copa America. But then the question becomes whether he justifies that investment going forward. I don't Mm. know what his contract situation looks like exactly. But I I do think in terms of the options, he's still a guy just based on the options the Timbers have that might still get playing time. But if he doesn't justify, you're right. One, you don't want to put a Bobasi on the bench over him. And two, what does it mean for going forward into next year? Want to go to some more Brian Fernandez questions? Always. All right. Uh, <laughs> Tim and Jaws have similar questions, so I'm going to ask them at once. Uh, Tim's version of the question is, given the start Fernandez has had, how long will it take for suitors to come after him? Does he have a buyout clause in his contract? We don't know that, Tim. Uh, Jaws basically asks a similar question. How long will Fernandez be a timber? We're already here, Jamie. We're already talking about this. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if there's already teams uh, looking at him. Um, I don't know if anyone's actually come with Gavin Wilkinson and said, hey, you want to sell the player you just bought? Um, Maybe not. But I absolutely think if this continues or anywhere close to the production that he's been having continues that in the summer and certainly at the end of the year, Gavin Wilkinson is going to get a lot of offers for Fernandez. And if those offers hit a certain number, I think the Timbers would sell him. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's just the reality of the game here in the United States, that once you reach a certain number, and the number, frankly, has to be pretty high because of the way MLS's rules work. Um, There has to be the recoup of an investment for the Timbers as far as the designated player purchase is concerned, and then uh, what they're allowed to keep and what they're allowed to put back into the team. 
you have to – I mean, this is part of the reason why the Almiron price ended up being so high, why people coming after Joseph Martinez have been turned away, not being able to meet a huge evaluation. Uh, and we're hearing the same things now with Ezekiel Barco and the rumors that, you know, in order to sell him, Atlanta would have to get like $30 million to justify it. It's like, well, he's not a $30 million player. With Brian Fernandez, the Timbers are going to be in that situation here pretty soon. I, at the same time, this kind of feels like asking the Pelicans, you know, when are you going to trade Zion Williamson? It's like, wait a minute, the guy's not even here yet, and we're already talking about this? Like, he's going to have to move? But just like it was a reality for them that Anthony Davis was going to have to move on, it might be a reality that Brian Fernandez, even if he doesn't move on, is always going to be speculated with the next stop. Yeah, I would not be shocked to see this be the only uh, half year we have with Brian Fernandez. At the same time, I wouldn't be shocked for him to be here for multiple years. The Timbers clearly like to have a guy that produces like this but if he keeps producing like this and a team can hit a certain mark the timbers are going to sell him yeah well i mean and that's part of the point of buying a younger player too is the reality of the business of the world uh speaking of realities jamie it's the reality of the portland thorns (laughs) that they are still without the bulk of the talent as nine players at the world cup but that was the same situation for north carolina this weekend on saturday and carry a 1-1 draw jamie what were our predictions uh, they were wrong. Um, oh, I'm shocked. <laughs> they I'm were shocked. wrong, yeah. We're not good at predictions sometimes. Sometimes it feels really great when we're, we're right on, but uh, I feel it just, like... It just it, feels shocking. It doesn't feel great. Yeah. It just feels more like, oh my God. It's like hitting a telephone pole with your car. Like it's, <laughs> You just don't know what to think about it in those first <laughs> seconds after it happens. Um, but yeah, no, we were... I, I predicted a 1-0 loss. I, I, I do... It's pretty close. Uh, yeah, I don't know that that's totally away from the sort of the how the game played out exactly, but it, it's inaccurate. And you predicted at least three goals uh, between the two teams, which also uh, pretty close too. Yeah, could have happened um, yeah. if the game had played out in different ways. Uh, I, I think a one-one draw doesn't necessarily speak to the game we saw. Yeah, I think it's uh, open debate, and we've seen that debate happen in the comments between Mark Parsons and Paul Riley, who, I mean, those two just need to get into a room and talk it out at this point. Clearly uh, subtweeting each other via different writers' copy ever since uh, Saturday's game. Um, of course, I've played into that a little bit by having Mark's quotes in, under my byline, but it's just a fact of the rivalry right now that seemingly every time these teams play, these coaches are going to run to the media and subtweet each other about each other's styles. And um, I, I'd be interested to hear what people think about that because I know in this town, there's still a lot of, I don't want to say animosity, but animosity might actually be right. There's still a lot of animosity towards Paul Riley at his false Pied Piper role that he played for, for two years. And so everybody looks at the comments that he says in a very you know, negative manner. But from a North Carolina point of view, look, Mark Parsons saying that in the second half, he like, the team forced North Carolina wide and forced them to cross and forced them to play like they always do. That's essentially doing the same thing that Paul Riley did to Portland this weekend. So I, I just kind of see both these guys as just, you know, lobbing pebbles at each other. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not, I see, see, I, I had a good relationship with Paul when, when he was here. And I, I think that the dynamic has been, he, he sort of has become the villain in Portland a little bit. Um, yeah. And the whole North Carolina team has, um, and he cer- certainly played into that with his comments and some of his tweets. Um, but it is still weird for me to say that because when he was here, I-, I thought he was a great coach to work with. No, I mean, Paul Riley has been a great coach to work with ever since uh, I first started working with him in Philadelphia in 2010. He was you know, just as successful there as he's been at North Carolina now. And uh, Portland's the aberration in that story. And I think a lot of people just felt that ultimately Paul 
the, ex- the same exaggerations that we always hear from Paul. Look, when you're winning, it sounds like you're exuberant and you're being positive about things. When you're losing, it sounds like you're covering things up and lying. I think one of the greatest examples was after, I think, with the last time he played with Portland and Kansas City, and they lost. I think they lost badly. He basically took time to talk about how crappy all the facilities in Kansas City were. And here in Portland, people were like, well, that's really, really bad sportsmanship. Which it, maybe it was, but look how history played out with Kansas City. Yeah. So, so um, I, we've got sidetracked here a little bit, but I think that dynamic is really indicative of where the rivalry is now. It's not only two teams competing on a field. There's this stylistic element. There's this identity element to it that, um, you know, if not managed, I think can, could build into something more. I think there's something potentially a little bit ugly here. Yeah, uh, I think that's right. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the game, though. Let's get away from the, <laughs> the, the dynamics ugly. between the ugly between the two teams. I, I think in terms of talking about Portland's performance, Kevin asks, I, I think, a good question to, to jump off of. He says, with North Carolina's possession, shot total, and in his opinion, dominance in the second half, are the Thorns lucky that they didn't lose that game by a lot? Or am I underestimating the Thorns defense? Uh, yes and yes. So I don't look. I don't think the Thorns were lucky per se. But if North Carolina had put three goals on this board in the second half, nobody's going to ask how that happened. As is, I think the Thorns did manage the situation well, and they they built on the rewards they earned in the first half. But there's no, absolutely no doubt that North Carolina dominated that game. Look, Portland finished with 42 percent completed passes. I can't remember the last time that was that low. That is worse than completing a soccer pass, rolling a ball to your teammate, than Dwight Howard shoots it from the free throw line. That's, I mean, it's terrible. Uh, but at the same time, that's the dynamic that I think Portland knew was coming, and they managed it well. Um, I think you are under, I think he is underestimating the Thorns' defense, Jamie. I think the defense played pretty well. Uh, I even think the goal that happened, look, I think that's a foul. I think that when Catherine Reynolds has a player run through the back of her, you can look at his shoulder-to-shoulder, but shoulder-to-shoulder is something that you usually, uh, we usually evoke when two players are vying for a ball on the ground, not... Go- you know, trying to chase a pass that's beyond the defense. At the same time, uh, I was really impressed, really impressed with how the courage came out of halftime. And to me, uh, they just showed you exactly why they are just the most fearsome team in the league. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I, I the thorn the courage dominated that game, um, and I think the thorns were have to be pretty happy with the result that how it ended up. I, I think. There could be a little bit of disappointment given early in the game the Courage weren't dominating, and that really happened after the Thorns scored the goal, so maybe why did momentum shift? At the same time, the Thorns, on top of dealing with the absences they're dealing with, were, were also missing Emily Menges, which could have really impacted the defense. They were also missing Dagny Ringestadter. That's a starter. I, I don't know if she's contributed uh, necessarily as much as we've wanted in this World Cup period, but, but that's another starter out of their lineup. They were playing some players that uh, this is new to them, you know, coming into North Carolina, playing on the road. It, it's a difficult place to t- play against a good team. And that good team, I, I think, was far superior to the Thorns in the second half and, and really yeah. after the first goal. And I, I think to get a 1-1 draw, given how the game played out, the Thorns should be pretty happy with being able to manage the game in a way to make that happen. Okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back on this dominance thing a little bit because in the second half, of course, they were dominant, but... The last time you and I podcast, we went through the same thing where uh, you said that North Carolina, not I'm sorry, not North Carolina, Los Angeles FC dominated the first half against the Thorns, and I went back and looked at that after the after the goal that LAFC scored, 
the the thorns control possession for the next 20 minutes. So the thorns or the... Sorry, the timbers. Tim- <laughs> the timbers, yes. No, the thorns did too. But the timbers control possession for the next 20 minutes. Um, now, the thorns in the first half, I thought even after the goal, it wasn't like North Carolina dominated the first half at that point. In fact, I didn't think they really started dominating the game until they brought in... They made some substitutions at halftime. They moved more ties to right back. It allowed them to be more dynamic on the flanks. They moved uh, McCall Zerboni back in midfield, allowed them to have a greater strength in the transition points. I thought that's when the dominance really ha- started to happen. In the first half, I-, I don't think the Thorns were quite as far ahead of North Carolina as Mark Parsons implied, but I did think they created the better chances. I thought that North Carolina only had one or two decent chances in the first half. I thought overall the Thorns were probably the slightly better team throughout the full 45 minutes. I think there was an obvious change between the first half and the second half. I think maybe dominate is the right word to use for the second half, but I felt like momentum definitely shifted in the Courage's favor in the first half after the Thorns scored that goal. I felt like there was an immediate shift where North Carolina started to get better opportunities and it looked like they might have a chance to equalize. I don't think... I think the difference is in the second half, it it really felt like North Carolina was taking it to the Thorns for the entire half. Whereas in the first half, I do agree that the Thorns were still creating opportunities. It still felt more even. But but I, I felt like that momentum shift w- was something that came immediately after the goal. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Either way, I think the, the story of this game is just how the Thorns, even the phrasing here is weird. I was about to say how the Thorns were able to hold out in the second half. I mean, whether you think they were able to hold out or North Carolina just merely didn't execute as well as they could have that probably determines how you think about this match now one thing that is clear is that the thorns all of a sudden have a new goal scorer i think when somebody scores four goals in three games all of a sudden she's leading the team in goals midge purse uh you have to start wondering you know is how real is this this is more than just a world cup thing because midge purse has had this talent before but she's never really been able to play for long periods of time as a striker before so is this just a matter of her getting these opportunities or is it just a good run of form i i think it's hard to tell i think mitch purse is a starter or or, or just just barely missing the starting lineup when the thorns have their full roster here and i and that's that's an impressive feat for anyone because when the Thorns have their full roster here, uh, they have a really, really good team. They, they have some of the best players in the world. Um, I, I'm not sure how she would do against other competition if she was starting consistently maybe at, at a striker position. Uh, but given, you know, I, I mean, Anastasia and Gorchevich has been starting up top. Um, there are questions about why has been starting up top even when the full roster's here. There are questions about lineup moves that Thorns might be able to make even when they get their players back in order to get Midge Purse on the field and up top in the attack, not in an outside back role, to see if this is uh, real or if it's more that she is better than the competition right now and still very good NWSL player when everyone's back, but maybe not at the level where she's going to be a consistent goal-scoring threat then. I, I don't think we know, but... I think she's deserved, she certainly proved enough that when the players come back, she deserves to stay in the lineup. And Mark Parsons is going to have to find a way to at least give her opportunities to stay in the lineup, not as an outside back, but in the attack to see if this is something that she can continue. Yeah, Haley Rasso and Anna Cernogorsovic should be a, uh, 
should be watching this film yeah. and realizing that the fight they're going to have over the rest of the year. And I also think to a certain extent, Ellie Carpenter should too, because if Haley Rosso wins that battle and you still are determined to get Mitch Purse on the field, look, I don't think Ellie Carpenter's been bad this year, but I don't think she's been great either. I don't think she's put herself above a competition. Uh, so if you're really, really intent on getting Mitch Purse onto the field as much as possible, Maybe the combination of Mitch Purse and Haley Rosso together on that right side is something that happens. Either way, Mitch Purse has put herself in this conversation. I think the interesting thing for me is the most impressive stretch during these three games for Mitch Purse, for me, was the first 20 minutes against Chicago before she scored her goals. She was absolutely terrorizing that back line. The effort she was putting in, the defending, the way she was turning defenders, the way she was able to get the ball, look back towards the middle for Simone Charlie. The way, same way Simone Charlie did in the two goals that eventually happened. Uh, I guess the one goal was the look back in. The other one was the through ball in the first one. To me, that was more impressive than the goals Mitch Purse has even scored because a lot of these goals have been about being in the right position at the right time. Um, it's not like she's t- on these four goals. She's taking on defenders, um, doing great one-on-one plays. A couple of them have been crosses. Uh, the goal in Washington. and Was it Washington or Sky Blue? I'm getting my games mixed up Sky here. Sky Blue. The Sky Blue game, and then uh, the set one of the goals here uh, at Providence Park. The goal this weekend, look, great run to get in that place, but the goal was left open. It was a great finish with her outside foot, but if you're a scorer, you, you finish that one, right? Um, I think she's done a great job to put herself in these places, but I also think it's indicative of the team around her really taking advantage of her too. So I look for these goals to slow down a bit. But like I said, at the same time, she's doing stuff beyond just the goal column that I think is super impressive. Are you happy with Mitch Purse essentially being the goal scorer that Thorns need during this World Cup period? Or, or do you want to see other players getting on the goal, uh, the score sheet as well? Wow. You know, I, I read this question an hour ago and I thought about this in a different way. But now that we're having this conversation, I kind of almost consider it like... You want to separate out Mitch Purse from everybody else. You're, of course, you're happy with Mitch Purse. You're happy even if she is the only goal scorer because during this time, like we talked about four weeks ago, you needed somebody to step up. And Mitch Purse has stepped up. And I think we all feel that Simone Charlie can even have a goal here pretty soon. But at that time we were talking about it, the names we were talking about were Dagny Brignard's daughter and to a a greater extent, because we knew she was going to be farther up in attack, Anna Maria Sernogorcevic. I'm not seeing Anna Marina Sornogorcevic putting herself in position to get goals. I'm not seeing Dagny Brynjard sort of do that either, although she was gone this weekend, so we probably should take her out of this conversation. So I think you can live in a space where you're thrilled about Purse and you're thrilled about Charlie, but you can also wonder the lack of increase in production with greater role for Sornogorcevic in particular. What does that mean? And so to kind of dovetail with the conversation we were just having, when you have this competition that's about to happen between Haley Rosso, Anna Sernogorcevic, and Mitch Purse, Jamie, rank those three players one to three right now. I think we know who's three. Yeah, I I think we have to. I mean, yeah, I think Anna Sernogorcevic had a big opportunity during this World Cup period, and she hasn't um, taken advantage of it so far. Um, Haley Rosso is obviously gone with Australia, and that competition's a little bit different with her not being here. Um, but Midge Purse, everything she's doing right now, I, I, I feel convinced that when the players come back, Mark Parsons is at least going to give her an opportunity in the starting lineup in the attack, not just that outside back, yeah. um, to see if she can continue this. And that means that another player is coming off. And, and you have to wonder why that wouldn't be Anna Sergorjevic. Yeah. And look, this weekend's uh, sacrifice that Midge Purse gave, 
the physical sacrifice that she gave this weekend, she is doing absolutely everything that is not only being asked of her, but that you can reasonably expect from her. I almost think that anybody at this level, when they do that, they deserve playing time. Because Mitch Purse is playing is playing amongst elite players in the situation she is now. And that effort, even when you inject nine more elite players back into this team, that effort deserves to be rewarded. Because as a coach, if you're not going to reward that, how can you credibly go to your team and say, give me everything you've got and I will make it worth your while? Mitch Purse is giving everything she's got. And I just thought... I just thought that the performance she gave on Saturday was just so, so admirable from yeah. the effort. And I think, I, I haven't talked to Midge about this, but I think from watching her and watching her over these last few weeks, she views herself in a leadership role during this time that everybody's gone. And I think she went out there and led by example this week, and it was incredibly valuable. Yeah. And I, I think the Thorns are going to want her to lead by example again uh, on Friday when they play the Utah Royals it's at Providence Park, 8 p.m. It's an yeah. amazing segue. <laughs> um, you know, when I you, leave this show, you're going to have to do that more often. You're going to have know. to be the segue person. I know. It's, it's going to be a challenge. Hopefully I can. I don't know. I think you're can, stepping up to the challenge. You're, <laughs> you're the bitch person of this podcast right now. Your effort, your effort is incredible. Incredible. Uh, that's that's a terrible comparison. I should I should not be on any plane where Mitch Pierce is on that level. I'm nowhere nearer in any way. Um, but the Thorns will play Utah on Friday. They'll host Utah at home. Utah's been good so far this season. Uh, yeah. They're coming off a 1-0 win over Sky Blue. They're obviously missing a, a few players, but they still have Amy Rodriguez, um, who I believe has scored four or five goals in the last six games. I, I think five goals in the last six games. So mm-hmm. uh, they're almost counting on her to score a goal of game. If you want to, um, not that she's a midge purse over there, because I, I think Amy Rodriguez has been doing this forever. Yeah. Um, but thorns at home. What, what do you think they have to do to get a win? I think they just have to play like they've been playing, to be honest with you. I think Utah is obviously a very good team. Not only the standings say that, but when you watch their games, I'm struck a, by the difference between these Laura Harvey teams and the Laura Harvey teams that were so successful in Seattle. Because when you watch those teams in Seattle, there was this almost swashbuckling element to them that kind of said, we have Kim Little, we have Jessica Fishlock, and we have Keelan Winters, and you don't. And we're just going to play you. Now, it's as if they, they are so accountable. They are so drilled not to make mistakes. They're so drilled not to take things for granted. They're so drilled not to play like a team that can just go out there and assume they have more talent than you. Uh, in a lot of ways, Amy Rodriguez embodies that. You know, she, she gives as much effort as anybody in the league constantly. Her runs are killer. The fact that she's still being this productive at this point of her career is amazing. There's a reason why so many people are, are excited for her. At the same time, I don't see anything about Utah that tells me that they should be able to come in here and be as effective in Providence Park against these current Thorns that they, as, they've, as they've been against the rest of the league so far. Yeah, I think the Thorns, if they keep playing like... If they play like they did against Chicago, I think the Thorns are going to be able to get a win here. I, I think the keys are making sure Amy Rodriguez doesn't beat you, or if she does, she doesn't beat you again. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, Utah's not an expansion team anymore. They, they've taken... they've made big strides from last year and they weren't a bad team last year, but they made strides and the thorns can't underestimate this team. They're clearly having a strong start. They're clearly a good team. They have Amy Rodriguez. 
if the Thorns can play their game and be aware of that, I think they should be able to get a win at home. Yeah, I mean, there are some really great talents that are still there in Utah. We talked about Amy Rodriguez. Uh, Vero, people in this market know Vero. People in this market revered Vero, maybe a little bit too much, but she's still a quality player. Uh, Gunny Yon's daughter is a very good player, a very tough player to play against. Katie Stengel, too. Uh, they have some good players, but also you look at their back line. Um, this is already a point where when they didn't have Becky Sauerbrunn in the team, they were always, well, any team that loses Becky Sauerbrunn is obviously yeah. almost by definition a lot weaker, right? But they are starting two players, Gabby Vincent and Michelle Mimoni, who aren't, well, they're the players that you have to get by with during this time, right? And so he, uh, here at Providence Park on the road against the pressure that we saw Midge Purse and Simone Charlie exert on Chicago – Utah is going to have to have a way of dealing with that. And usually the way of dealing with that is getting more people back there to help, being a lot more conservative. I think it's going to be a very low-scoring game on Friday. Do we have any idea if Emily Menges or Dagny Brynjestadter will be back for the game? Obviously, Mark Parsons has not had his availability yet, so mm. we might not have an update. Uh, yeah, so because of the timing of the Menges injury, um, we don't have an official word on that yet. So we'll probably have to wait till tomorrow. Uh, I know Dagny Brignard's daughter is coming back into market this week, but it's going to be late in the week. I think it's going to be Thursday that she's going to be in. So I, I don't know if that means she will or won't play. I think if if she was coming back in during another time of the year to a full strength team, she probably wouldn't play because she wouldn't have had a lot of time with the team. But obviously these are special circumstances. Uh, Emily Menges, it's another leg injury. And I think obviously it, it happened outside of a game. It happened at a practice. So I think some of the questions regarding some of the injuries that she's had last year, she missed significant time at the, in the, during the first half of last year. And then she missed significant time already this year. So, It'll be interesting to hear how Mark describes this injury and uh, how he answers these questions about Emily Menges' reoccurrences because she's gone from person who you could not pull out of the lineup to person you don't know if she's going to be in the lineup. Yeah, it's really disappointing. And, I mean, obviously it it's, must be really disappointing for her. And I don't know. I, I think – you have to try to figure out why these leg injuries keep popping up and whether there's anything else underlying there. I mean, I'm sure the medical staff is looking into everything, but it's it's just disappointing that it's been so tough for her to get back on the field because the Thorns really need her. Yeah. I mean, it's it's coming to a point, and I think it, you know I'll start asking questions about this. I think we all should, that you have to wonder if the routines that she thrived in during the first couple years here under Mark Parsons are now at this point of her career with the way that her body has evolved now, not the right routines because the, the way these injuries are coming, they are not contact injuries. These aren't stress. I mean, these aren't collision injuries. These are, are wear down injuries. Yeah. So you have to wonder about that. I, I do think though that between Elizabeth ball, Gabby Seiler and Catherine Reynolds, that there is center back depth. We saw Kelly Hubley get her first run in the team since the middle of last year this weekend. Uh, it could have been better, I thought. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it was a very uh, high-intensity situation. So she she's also obviously another option there. So it'll be interesting to see what they do without Emily Menges. She's an incredibly valuable team. Uh, over her time in Portland, the team tends to allow half a goal more per game when she's not in the team, which is a huge amount. But I will say this weekend that I thought the defense played pretty well. And I, I guess given how they've played ever since the World Cup absences started, I I don't know why they can't continue playing well on Friday. Yeah, um, the, I think that's certainly right. I think there is definitely depth 
uh, especially for for this World Cup period. I, I think in terms of the players that Thorns are throwing in, um, you're, you're not looking at really compared to the rest of the league. I, I think the Thorns have some depth um, on defense that mm. they can get it done with. It, it's just disappointing not to see Emily Menges being. Mm. I, I mean, she's essentially was going to be the captain during this time. I think, or yeah, if not a, a huge leader. To not see her out there, I, I just yeah. think it's it's tough. Yeah, she wore the armband for the Chicago game. I think you know when you lose her, um, you know I I feel like I write about this twice a year how valuable she is to the team's culture too. Now she's going to be around. It's not like she just goes away. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, you have a leg injury. Just go away. We don't want that infecting people. Bye. No, she's going to be around. Um, I, I you know I can't really say the same for the other big injury that happened. Um, I was talking with somebody yesterday at the T2 game about Angela Salem who. You know, she hasn't played that often for the Thorns, but when you actually look down towards the end of the year, she could have been starting next to Lindsay Horan in midfield at the end of the year. I mean, she had she had assumed a starting role. You know, the stylistic matches between Horan and Brynja's daughter doesn't quite, in one frame of mind, look as good as having Salem there who is always going to sit and if Horan could get forward. Um, Celeste Bure, for whatever reason, had lost her starting spot to Angela Salem. Losing her... I think we're going to forget about it because we still haven't got in our mind that Angela Salem is like a, you know, a thorn because she just hasn't played that many games. But that could turn out to be a pretty big loss when we're talking about this team two months from now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't have a good transition, but... <laughs> oh, you've already <laughs> had a good one. Yeah. After, after depressing Speak, injuries... Speaking of pretty big losses... <laughs> Speaking of pretty big losses, Thailand lost 13 to 0 to the United States <laughs> at the World Cup. That was the pause you heard, everybody. Jamie did not want to use that transition. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we were talking about Women's World Cup games. Obviously, that's been keeping all of us entertained uh, during this period where the Timbers and the Thorns haven't been playing as much. Um, I think we've both been watching nonstop. The yep. U.S. obviously uh, is probably the team we're watching the closest. Although I've been watching, I've been watching all the games, and I'm sure you have as well. Mm. Uh, the U.S. beat Thailand 13 to zero, as mentioned, uh, most lopsided score in Women's World Cup history. A lot of debate coming out of that one. Um, <laughs> and then they beat Chile three to zero. So, so what have you, what have you been thinking about the World Cup so far? What, do, what do you want to talk about? What, what has kept uh, your mind occupied? I am becoming more and more convinced that the United States is clearly the best team in this tournament. And it's a little bit weird to say that because they've played two games that everybody knew that they were not only going to win, but they were going to have easy games with. They've played their two easiest games of the tournament at this point. Uh, nothing against Chile, but that game could have been much more lopsided. And Chile never really came close to keeping that game competitive, even though it was 3 to nothing. Um, but when you look at the way that other teams are playing, we saw France today have trouble with Nigeria. Uh, trouble might be an exaggeration, but they had trouble scoring goals against Nigeria. Germany just woke up today after a couple of unimpressive performances. You just go down the list. England hasn't been as convincing as they probably would. Canada, I think, has actually been pretty good, but they've had a couple teams that haven't tried to play them yet. To me, the United States, when you look at both the results, the pedigree, and the roster, they're the clear favorite. And in my mind, it really comes down to whether France can really leverage their home field advantage in order to close that gap. If it's really unfortunate that the U.S. is, a, I guess we don't know for sure, but very likely to play France in the quarterfinals. It's yeah. really unfortunate because 
that's the one game. Eh? I mean, if France just has a really great game and the U.S. falters, the U.S. could be out of this tournament in the quarterfinals. Yeah. If if they win that game, I I think they probably win the tournament in my mind. But but that's going to I think be the biggest game in in the World Cup, and it's going to come in the quarterfinals. Yeah, and I think it's a it's a very dangerous game for the U.S. for a couple of reasons. Um, the midfield matchup. France has two very experienced midfielders in there with Elise Busaglia and, of course, Amandine Henri. And I think sometimes the U.S. can get a little bit ambitious with how they're trying to balance their midfield. Sometimes they want to get Lindsey Horan forward. They definitely want to get Julie Ertz forward once they establish their attacking shape and try to hit her with crosses. And those little things, I think, could leave them vulnerable to losing that midfield battle, particularly if they start Rose Lavelle instead of Sam Muez. I think in that game, if they just go with Muiz, Ertz, and Haran and just say, we're going to beat the crap out of you, I think that's where America's going to be the strongest. America. America. <laughs> <laughs> and really, for the United States, it's, I think so much of their game is about winning those balls in midfield and playing it to Rapino and Heath. I know Alex Morgan had a five-goal game. She's awesome. But when you have Megan Rapino and Tobin Heath as your wide players, your creators you should be a favorite in almost any game you play. And you need to put them in situations to be special. So I think it could come down to that. But at the same time, look, if the U.S. draw against Sweden or even get upset against Sweden, I'm not going to be surprised. This, these things happen. We've seen it happen. They almost habitually like struggle against Sweden in the group phase. I mean, and obviously in the knockout rounds too, as we saw at the World Cup. But I think when you're looking at all the weaknesses and strengths of all the teams, um, if I were France, I would not want to be facing the U.S. that early in the tournament. Yeah. Absolutely not. Um, I, I agree. I mean, I think the U.S. are, are the favorites, but I, I think it will come down to that game. I don't really want to talk about celebrations that much because that was the that yeah. was the talking point from a few days ago. Yeah, our but, uncles and grandfathers took care of that over the last yeah. week. <laughs> but how would you? How would women's soccer be different if VAR called goalkeepers off the their line back in 1999 uh, when the U.S. faced China in, in the World Cup final? Yeah, that's what I've been thinking about this week. Yeah, well, I mean, what we've had two instances now where VAR has called goalkeepers off their line early over yeah. two instances in the last three days. Uh, it's it's this weird thing because we see this in other places in soccer too, where VAR is used to enforce a rule. It's not like they changed the rule. The problem is that over the years, people started taking advantage of the lack of enforcement on this rule. Like, nobody is looking at what happened today in the France-Nigeria game and saying, oh, she was actually on her line. No, what they're saying is that it's BS that we're using VAR to call something that is a clear breaking of the rule. Now, I think it's, I think it's petty. I don't think it's wrong. I think it's petty as hell that they're doing this. But I think it is a good reminder that you probably need to clean up that rule somehow. It's either you're, you're always going to enforce it, or you're, and you should always be enforcing encroachment in the penalty area either, or you need to acknowledge that the implicit rule that we've developed over the years is actually the rule that should be the, imp, like the actual rule, the explicit rule. I, I think the weird part is it doesn't feel like they're enforcing encroachment I, I, either. Like, right. It's it's let's handpick this part of the rule and yeah I mean it's like, not like the goalkeepers even made made a save the Nigeria goalkeeper didn't make a save they 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 put that ball uh, off the poster wide and that's what's so crappy about it right because it yeah. didn't matter at all yeah I think so. there are always points where certain things become enforced start to be enforced right uh, I remember during the you know the 1994 World Cup they started handing out red cards for you know 
tackling from behind, which nowadays doesn't seem like a big deal. Like if you slide tackle somebody from behind, you're going. But back in 1994, when the game was just disgusting and ugly, they were like, okay, let's let's stop doing this. And everybody complained about that at that time too. Um, you know, and in every sport, people complain about things when they start to change from the standard. I think here what's interesting is that the standard kind of sucks. Um, and like you were kind of implying, okay, well, what's, what's next? Are we going to start using VAR to judge throw-ins? Because... I think most of the time somebody's foot is off the ground on a throw-in or there's too much spin on the ball on a throw-in. So it's just so petty. But like I said, it's not like she was actually on the line either. Yeah. She did she did break the rule. Yeah, let's just work on the rules maybe. Yes. It, it, it feels it, – it's just – the fact that Nigeria might not be going the knockout round because of that now is, is just – yeah. So it's just terrible. Yeah, and I think there are going to be some teams that do make the knockout round that I'll say to myself, they're not as good as Nigeria. Yeah. So. But it, what what else has come to mind for you in this tournament, Jamie? I mean, for me, I really can't think of very many games that I watched and I was like, well, that was a waste of time. Like, I've been legitimately engaged in all of these games. I think maybe there was one last week where I was like, oh, this is starting to feel like a regular tournament now. Uh, sloggy, sloggy, sloggy. But I think overall, I've I've had more fun watching this tournament than I maybe have had in the last... Well, I was, I was starting to count backwards in time. I'm having more fun watching the 2019 World Cup than I had watching the 2018 World Cup. Yeah, I, well, I had a lot of fun watching the 2018 World Cup, too. They were both pretty great. I, I mean, that Australia, this year's Australia-Brazil uh, oh, game, yeah. that was tremendous. That was such a great <sighs> game to watch. I just put down all my work. I was trying to work and watch at the same time, which I've been doing through this tournament. I just... I'm going to put this all down and just watch this game because this is great. By the way, still, I still don't know if Australia is actually good. Because, yeah, no, okay. it's very unclear. <laughs> yeah, Caitlin Ford scores that goal before halftime. Fair enough. The next goal, Chloe Legarzo, basically the goalkeeper is trying to anticipate whether Sam Kerr is going to get a boot on it, and it gets by her. Okay, good goal, but weird goal. And then you had the goal that was the, off, the de- debated offside call uh, as to yeah. whether Sam Kerr was actually affecting play on the own goal. To me, like only one of those three goals or something that you were like, okay, yeah, that's something that we plan to do. And so yeah. we're sitting here at this point of the tournament wondering, has Australia actually like beaten anybody in a way that makes you go, yeah, they're Australia? Not me. Like I think yeah. there have probably been – well, if I had to bet on it going into the next round, I really don't see an Australia team that makes it past the quarterfinals right now. Yeah, I, I think Australia has been a bit of a disappointment. I, I think part of the reason why it, it, you look at this – the tournament right now and say, yeah, the U S is favorite is has to be the favored uh, favorite team is there. A lot of teams have sort of faltered a little bit in the group stage so far. Um, Teams that we expected to, to be much more dominant. Yeah. I think um, not even beyond just the faltering, just the not looking so good. I mean, Australia, I would say has faltered, but if I had to pick two teams coming into this tournament that I thought were best situation to give the United States trouble, it would have been Australia and England. And for England, it's because of that midfield dynamic where I think physically with players like Jill Scott, they're in a good place to match up with them. And then uh, England just can out athlete the U S sometimes like they, they just have a really good work, really good group of hardworking players, but I haven't been impressed by England at all this tournament either. And maybe it's, maybe they've gotten to the point where they're so mature. They don't need to kick it into gear into the quarterfinals. That would be awesome if that is the case. But as of right now, I'm not seeing the evidence that they are actually within striking range of the U S. Yeah. Or maybe Argentina is just so good at defending. <laughs> yeah. Well, that does, that does fit the stereotype, right? I mean, as far as surprises though, kind of like the same stereotype, uh, as far as teams that have, tr- 
you know, culturally are traditionally very organized and play tough, but maybe aren't that great to look at. Italy has been very good yeah. to me. And it's not in a kind of like an Italy be tough, don't break us down kind of way. They've played some great soccer to me. And I, I think that's a team that I just grossly underestimated them because I haven't watched a league game of Italians women's football in four years. I mean, before Juventus started investing really in their yeah. players. So I have no idea of the quality of that league, but I do have some idea of the quality of their players and they're very good so far. Yeah, it's been exciting. Um, I, I think that I'm interested to see how I think that's Group C, how Australia and Brazil, how that group's going to pan out yeah. um, after the final game. That's probably the most interesting thing for me going into this final group stage game, um, as well as, of course, seeing how the U.S. does against Sweden. Yeah, the U.S. versus Sweden. And like you said, that that quarterfinal matchup that is looming, because I don't think, you know, if U.S. wins their group, I don't think Spain's going to give them that much trouble. Yeah. That quarterfinal matchup between the U.S. and France, it feels like four years ago when France and Germany met in the quarterfinal, and you're kind of going, ooh, are we, are we getting the two favorites way too early? And that happened because France stumbled against Colombia and ended up in Germany's half of the bracket. Here, they were drawn this way. And I think right now we would all want a U.S. versus France final, and we're not going to get it. So yeah. maybe we should all root for Sweden. We should all root for Sweden to beat the U.S. Or we should all root for Jill Ellis to, I was about to say, play uh, play her weaker players. But honestly, if the U.S. just totally played their second 11 against Sweden, I think they would still be the favorites. Yeah, probably. Um, it, 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 Jill Ellis has been asked about this. I really don't think they're going to throw the game or do anything like no. that, even though they know that it would put them on probably the better side of the bracket. Um, so I'm expecting the U.S. to be first in this group in this France-U.S. Uh, quarterfinal to happen. Yeah. I mean, Sweden always makes things tough. I wouldn't be surprised if it's a 2-1 win for the U.S., but we're going to be looking at a U.S.-France matchup. And we can be sad about it next week, Jamie, because it's going to be an awesome game. And then the semifinals and the finals are just going to feel like a denouement. Yeah. Well, games that we're going to see before the U.S. versus France Yes! Are... <laughs> yes! God. See, I can't even do a transition because you're going to... I'm too excited about the transitions. Uh, Well, let's get to the predictions here uh, with the Timbers and Thorns. Um, The first one is happening on Wednesday, probably today when you're listening to the podcast. Timbers versus Galaxy, U.S. Open Cup. I should probably not be the ones reading this because I'm the one who probably should go first. I'm going to go with a 2-1 Timbers win. They're at home. I think both teams are going to rotate their lineup. I think the home team is going to win. Yeah, you've convinced me about the Galaxy's tactics here, or at least how they're likely to approach it. Tactics, kind of big picture tactics. So um, just kind of for the sake of being different from your prediction, I'm saying the Timbers will score at least three three goals. So yeah, which is rare for me. I can't remember the last time I I chose an offensive explosion. (laughs) Now, the next game of the week, we're going chronologically here, so we're going to skip over to the NWSL. Friday's game at Providence Park, Utah Royals. Thorns, Jamie, how... Many goals are you saying the Royals are going to win by? <laughs> I think the Thorns are going to win. I think they're going to what? win three to one. I think they're at home, and I think that with a good performance, they they can kind of surprise us like they did against Chicago. Probably won't be a surprise anymore, but I think the Thorns are going to win here, um, three to one win. Yeah, and I'm kind of in the same vein, just again a little bit different here. I'm saying the Thorns keep a clean sheet. Their defense has been good ever since people started leaving for the World Cup. They are probably. Um, I, I was about to say they're probably going to be without Emily Mangus, but I don't really know. I said probably because I just 
had to, before making this prediction, kind of say, well, what if Emily Megas isn't there? I just don't think it's going to matter that much against Utah. And kind of talked about some of the tactical elements early, earlier uh, in the show. Whether Megas plays or not, I think the Thorns are keeping a clean sheet in this one. Timbers versus Dynamo is on Saturday. That's the MLS game. This is the game that I think the Timbers are going to kind of put all their best players into, mm-hmm. um, if, even if it means sacrificing U.S. Open Cup a little bit. I think the Timbers are going to win this one 2-1. to one. Timbers yeah. are at home. They have to start getting results, but Dynamo are a good team. It's, it's going to be close. Yeah, you know, it really doesn't work when you have to be the first one that talks because then I can't bait you into having to justify, like, the false pick that I implied. <laughs> like, I can't say, and Jamie, how many goals are you expecting Utah to win by in this one? So, you're right. It does work better if I toss to you on these. Since I have to toss to myself now, I think one of the things that's interesting about the Dynamo is that they haven't given up that many goals this year, but they've already conceded three times for the penalty spot. Uh, there are two teams in the league that have conceded more times. Vancouver has conceded seven times so far this year from the penalty spot. I think that's wrong, but I'm looking at the the page right here in front of me. And then um, Toronto has conceded six times for the penalty spot. Look, Portland's a difficult environment to play in. I know for a long time that Merritt Paulson was posting numbers or telling us numbers when I was in the free press about the Timbers not getting penalty kick calls. That has changed in recent years. I am going to go with the Portland Timbers get one penalty kick this weekend and convert it against the Dynamo and convert it. They score one penalty kick. (laughs) We've seen a lot of penalty kicks called back. Well, not scored and called back recently watching the world cup. Ooh, Yeah. What if this VAR (laughs) trend carries over into league? That would be interesting, but I wouldn't predict it. (laughs) I wouldn't predict that either. Uh, And I'm already ruining all the wasted time if that happens. Yeah. All right, let's get to the fantasy update. The spring season of soccer made in Portland's uh, head to head, uh, fantasy league is done. Uh, so we have winners, um, which is always fun. Um, in third place, we have flicking Portland PTFC. That's Mark, uh, Mark, who of course runs this league for us and, and provides us with this information all week. He, he puts a little smiley face next to his name because he finished in the top three. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's cool. Um, second place, we have global puppet show. That's Xavier. And in first place, I think we saw this coming. We have Wook score more goals, and that's Robert. Uh, I think the, the important stuff to know is that the soccer made in Portland head-to-head league um, that has 100 players, it's one that we had in the spring, is going to automatically renew. So the, the, that'll have a fall season. Um, and Mark has also started a classic league, which has no player cap number and, and is scored on total points. Um, we'll be sending out some information on how to sign up for that, but but if people that aren't involved in the Soccer Made in Portland Fantasy League want to get involved, um, that'll be starting soon, and you can sign up. Yeah, congratulations to Wook score more goals because you really LAFC'd this first half of the season. But <laughs> you know, I'm not a fantasy expert. I try to say something smart here at the end of every show, and the smart thing I'll say here is, look, Timbers fans, you know your team has a lot of home games coming up. You know that their attack has been really good over the last month. You know that they not only have a lot of home games, but they have some games to make up over the second half of the season. So pay a little bit more for those Timbers players in this uh, <laughs> this second this fall season that's coming up. In your in your expert fantasy analysis advice, why, yes. why that not pay off for them? They, everyone <laughs> follows your advice and they finish fifty eighth in those standings. <laughs> anybody who follows my advice about fantasy soccer deserves <laughs> what they get. Uh, that's probably right. <laughs> well, that's all we have for this week. Um, we can find us every week on Oregon Live Timbers.com. 
and uh, Stumptown Footy. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher. Uh, We're Soccer Made in Portland, if I can say the name. And until next week, take care. <laughs>